preaching God's word this morning and trust that he will do uh, his intended work in, in our lives as we encounter his word. Acts 19, 11 through 20. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege we have to hear it conveyed. I pray by your spirit you would powerfully convey truth through me, through your word being preached this morning. I pray, Lord, as this text is unpacked and unfolded before us, our hearts would burn. As we hear you speak to us, I want to pray that your word would have its full intended effect on our lives this morning. We need you. We need your word. So come and fill us this morning, Lord. Be honored. Be magnified, Lord Jesus, and lifted high. And it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Well, have, have y'all ever noticed something? Have y'all ever noticed how impressed we are by power? You ever, you ever notice that about yourself? It always, it always gets our attention, doesn't it? Power gets our attention. We, we admire it. We, we, we love to see it. We love to say, oh, look at that. We love to talk about it, show how awesome something was. We're impressed by power. So, so we become sports fans. And we chase dreams. And we do things that, that make us look great. We want power. We want to be a part of it. We stand, we stand in awe of power. Have you ever noticed that? We take pictures of sunsets in outer space. We think it's amazing. We crave power. So we try to climb the the social ladder or we try to work our way up to the top in the company, crave authority. Power power has a grip on our lives in a certain way. It functions in our lives a certain way. We, We love to have it and feel like we have it. So, you know, we try to manage sin in our lives, not relinquish its power. So we love to have it. We love to admire it. We respect it. We stand in awe of it. We love the feeling of power. Have you noticed that? I mean, we, we just love feeling it, that we have it. It's a part of our life. I'm not exactly what you'd call a handyman. Like I, I really wish I was, but I'm not. Um, I can pull some things off, uh, but for the most part, pretty bad at it. But my kids think I can fix absolutely anything. It's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I was coming home from work the other night, and one of my daughters ran up to me with Slinky. You know Slinky from Toy Story? Slinky's like this little dog. He's got a Slinky in the midst of him, in the middle of him for his body. And it's all tangled and jumbled and knotted up. They've been playing hard with it. She's like, Daddy, Daddy, can you fix this for me? And she hands me the little toy dog, and I'm, I'm looking at him like, there's, there's no way I can fix this. I'm trying to twist it up and untangle some of the knots in it. And in order to really fix it, you got to take it all apart and you can't really do that without breaking it. So I'm just looking at him like, sweetheart, you know, I'm sorry, but 
Daddy's, Daddy's just not going to be able to fix your toy today. And she responds, she's like, yes, you can, Daddy. You can fix anything. And I'm like, hey. That's right. Um, you know, Judith Ann, uh, being discerning and loving me well and a good friend, notices in that moment that I'm feeling a little proud. So she, she, she kind of leans over. She's like, honey, uh, she only says that because she doesn't know that's really not true. <laughs> but I enjoyed that, you know. I mean, we, we feel powerful there. I can, I can fix anything. You know, we're impressed by this kind of stuff. That's why Apple's new iPhone slogan, you're more powerful than you think. Sells. Sells thousands of phones each week. If you think about it, that's why Adam and Eve in the garden ate the fruit. They bought into the lie that they could be powerful, that they could be God, that they can know the difference between good and evil. Power, power grips us, it, it impresses us. We we want it. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that in the Bible how impressive God's power is? Have you ever seen it described how powerful it is and and seen the word pictures in here, how powerful God is? It's literally on every single page. Does it impress you? I mean, does does it get your attention? Are you, are you drawn to it? Do you look at Do you admire it? Let me ask you this. Does it, does it diminish the power of other things in your life? As you stare at God's power, does it diminish your sin? Does it give you hope at how powerful he is? The Bible is filled with stories and pictures of God's power. And you know, this morning, we're going to see an awesome display. Of God's power. An absolutely breathtaking display of God's power. It will expose all other powers for what they are. Simply impotent, weak, dependent, limited. And it will, it will impress our minds. So let's, let's read these words together and look at God's power. Verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came 
confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Before we get going and looking at this power, I think just any time our Western eyes and ears hear and, and see phrases like handkerchiefs and aprons touching evil spirits and then being casting out and people being healed, right? Anytime we read the words Jewish exorcists and from the sons of Sceva and an evil spirit overpowering them, anytime we read phrases like magic books being burned, probably helpful just to kind of frame for you what in the world is actually going on here in Ephesus because because we're just not used to seeing this kind of stuff or hearing about this kind of stuff with our our western ears and eyes so let me me just provide a little bit of framework for us this morning Um, just we're going to look at at really what what's going on in Ephesus like what what's happening in that city uh, what's this city known for? And if you look at your notes, I've got a little bit of a description of Ephesus. Basically, uh, Ephesus was a town where magic arts, demonic activity uh, flourished. It permeated throughout the city. Ephesus was the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis. You're going to learn more about uh, Artemis next Sunday from Pastor Peter. Um, it, was, it was once the, uh, uh, one of the seven ancient uh, wonders of the world. Uh, it was... a a feature of Ephesus. Um, it, it drew in many, many people from all around to come and, and learn about it and worship the goddess Artemis there. And so it was a very, uh, it was a very mystic kind of place. So demonic activity was kind of normal there. Um, people messing around with dark magic powers was kind of normal there. Uh, and this stuff was real and happening in Ephesus. Right? So, That's what's going on there. And I say this because the modern West is a very different place than Ephesus, isn't it? I mean, the same kind of stuff happens here. Don't get me wrong. It just just looks a lot different. There's demonic activity here. It just looks more like the spreading of ideas opposed to God and to his people. Rather than a demon-possessed man going Jackie Chan on seven dudes. Certainly healing here, miraculous healing. Often it takes the place, it takes place in a hospital rather than just touching an apron, like a sweat rag from a gospel minister. There's superstition here. Serious and silly. I mean, you know, we don't spill the salt, we cross our fingers, we don't walk under a ladder and that kind of stuff. But you know, here in New Orleans, there's voodoo, some dark practices here. We're aware of. And since we don't live in a culture that's highly aware of the spiritual realm like Ephesus was, we often don't take seriously or think rightly about the various powers that work that we see in Scripture, especially here in this text. As a result, we form a lot of misconceptions. We have some modern misconceptions about spiritual warfare, about spiritual powers in the spiritual realm. Right? C.S. Lewis captures... Uh, a couple thoughts there. I've got some quotes for you. Um, see if you can identify with what he says here. 
There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we see some of us want to sensationalize the supernatural to the max. And there are some of us who just want to downplay it altogether to a minimum. So some imagine a demon under every rock. They go around binding and loosing everything. And it's, it's the devil's fault you didn't get that parking spot. And others just live as if it doesn't even exist. Like it's not even affecting you. Like there's not really a war going on. Here and now. Right? We can fall into a couple of those errors. Or we can just fall into the error of thinking it's not real. Right? We kind of trivialize it. See that around Halloween time, we, we get all goofy and we dress up, you know, or see a horror film or some demonic film. It's got some beings in it. We, we think we, you know understand a little bit of it, but for the most part, we're like, that's not real. It's just Halloween time. It's just a movie. It's not really going on. Satan's just like this little pitchfork guy. Another quote by C.S. Lewis in your notes there. He says, this this is in his book, The Screwtape Letters. This is the the senior devil. Screwtape is talking to his protege, uh, demon, and uh, they're talking about a, a human who the protege is Oppressing. He says, I, I don't think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient, the human, in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade that since he cannot believe in that... It is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. Modern misconceptions abound in our culture. And we simply cannot go on in ignorance from them. And I think in this text, we're going to try to strike a biblical balance of this reality in our lives and see how it affects our lives, this power that exists. And and thirdly, here's what we're going to see in this text is is we're just kind of framing all this together. So you'll kind of have a, a context as we, as we go through this story. We're going to see increasingly superior powers at work here. Right? So we're going to see one power trumped by another, trumped by another, trumped by... It's kind of like in the Lord of the Rings. There's one ring that can rule over all other powers. There are powers, but there's just one ring that dominates them all. Like the little Russian hand-painted dolls. Y'all seen those? They kind of stack on top of one another. I recently saw a set of Saints players. The little Russian. So you had... I don't necessarily agree with this order. Uh, so you had Jimmy Graham, Marquise Colson, and on top of Marquise Colson was Mark Ingram, and then you had Pierre Thomas, and then Drew Brees to, to trump them all. I threw Ben Watson on there, that's just me. Um, <laughs> he loves the Lord. So we're going to see in this text increasingly superior powers at work. Okay, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see human power. You're going to see human power. 
kind of touched a little bit of that on the illustration. It's, it's a limited ability to have control over our lives in the course of events. We think we, we think actually control things in our lives and have, have power over how things turn out in our lives, right? It's limited. To be human is to want to have power, and, and we'll buy, we'll do, we'll say, whatever, to get it. So there's human power, and there's there's, there's these magical, occultic, kind of dark powers at work, and, and they trump the human power, magical or occult-like power. It's the limited ability to have apparent supernatural control over people in the course of events, right? It's just apparent. It's not, it's not real. It's tapping into something that's much more powerful than it. It's tapping into a supernatural realm, and that's, that's the next power that trumps that, right? The supernatural realm. It's the limited ability to have supernatural control over people in the course of events by using spiritual powers attributed to some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. This is where I think we need educated and helped here in the West. Uh, Satan is real. He's real. There are real, evil, supernatural powers at work opposing God and opposing his people. They hate you. They hate the church. They hate Jesus. They hate the gospel. They're real. They blind the eyes of the unbelieving to the light of the gospel. They mess up missionary journeys. They discourage Christians. It's real. Satan's more powerful than all of us put together. His power is real. It should sober us. There's a real enemy. Okay, and it's at work. And we're going to see that in this text. That's why Paul, you know, this, this church here, it's in Ephesus. Y'all know the letter of Ephesians, right? Paul says there's a, a prince, isn't there? There's a prince of the power of the air. His name's Satan. That's why he tells you in Ephesians 6, hey, listen, you don't wrestle against powers of flesh and blood. You don't. There are other real powers out there. Powers of darkness, authorities principalities in the heavenly realm. And they're very real. But then we see that there's an even greater power than that. A much greater power than that. And though there's a real real spiritual battle going on every day in this world, there's a war that's been won. And that victory belongs to Jesus. He's the son of God. He crushed the serpent's head. Game over. It's just a matter of time. He's, he's a great power. He is God. He is the creator. Satan only does what God grants Satan permission to do. He has no power over the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's God's power. And God's power refers to the unlimited ability to have sovereign control over all creation. This power, it's greater than all other powers. And listen, his power is available for you this morning. This power that trumps everything is available for you this morning. Available to have hope and to live an obedient life to God. And we need this in our lives. And specifically the power 
that's at work here that trumps all other powers we see in verse 20. It's the power of the gospel. That's what verse 20 is getting at, right? The, the conclusive summary statement there. We see about six of them in Acts, and it just sums up everything of what's happening. The gospel's going forth. It's unstoppable, and we see it happening in the lives of the church and the events of people, and then Luke will sum it up at the end, and that, that's what happens here. Verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. The word of the Lord here is referring to the gospel message. We're not talking about the whole Bible. We're talking about the gospel, this gospel that, that Jesus said. It's, it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Nothing's going to stop it. And as you proclaim it, churches are going to get established. People are going to get saved. Lives are going to get transformed. Crazy things are going to happen. And it's going to prevail and it's going to increase and it's going to grow and it's going to prevail in your life and increase and grow in your life. It's the power of the gospel. It's the gospel message and it can't be stopped. Remember, Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. Unto salvation for all who believe. The message about Jesus of Nazareth coming back to life. For our justification, after his horrific death on the cross to pay the price for our sins and grant us eternal life for the glory of God is the most powerful thing in the world. What else can raise people who are dead to life? What else can give you eternal life? What else can radically change you and transform your life and make you more like Jesus? Nothing. Nothing is more powerful. The gospel wins every time we can bank on it. It's the power of God. Trumps everything. And that's that's the big idea. That's the main point of this message. God's gospel message triumphs over all other powers. That's what Luke's telling us there. It triumphs over all other powers. There's nothing in the world more powerful than God's gospel message. It's unrivaled, explosive. As we see in Acts, it spreads dynamically throughout the world. Nothing can stop it. All opposition proves powerless to it. The gospel wins every time, and it has power to defeat even sin in your life. Even hard-heartedness towards God overcomes that. With its love and its wonderful, inviting message of grace. It's, it's true, you know, you, you really are not more powerful than you think. Sorry, Apple. You just, we're not. Now, we'll get a device that makes us feel that way. We have to do things that makes us feel that way. But, I mean, come on. Seriously, I mean, we're just, we're dependent creatures. Like I'm depending on God right now to breathe. No reason to live a life trying to make yourself look great. It's just illogical. It's irrational. We're not great. We're not more powerful than we think. But guess what? Guess what is more powerful than you think? The gospel. Do you believe that? The gospel is way more powerful than you think. We often don't give much credit to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, the gospel, yeah, I got that, I got that. Really, is it, is it transforming your life? 
Is it actively having an effect on your soul and your love for God? It's intended to. We diminish its power by trying to grab for other powers. We diminish its power by trying to manage our own sin and have control over our own lives. We're going to see, we're going to see how the gospel speaks to that in this passage today. And it's going to be glorious. Here in this story, we're going to see a couple scenes where the gospel's power triumphs over all other powers, right? We're going to see three pictures where this is true, how the gospel triumphs over all other powers. Scene one, scene one, verses 11 through 12 there. See what's happening there. This is a picture where Paul, God is at work. Who's at work? God is at work. Paul's not at work. God is working through Paul. And he's at work so powerfully through Paul that even Paul's handkerchief and apron are doing these extraordinary miracles. Now, I mean, that, what that's referring to there, the, the handkerchief is like a sweatband, right? It's like you wear it on the head to catch sweat. Apron's like an undershirt, right? So, so these are kind of like sweat rags. And... <laughs> Uh, God's so powerful that these things are just touching evil spirits and they flee. They're gone. Diseases are healed. God's at work here. And and what we're seeing is that the gospel triumphs over supernatural powers. God's just doing what God's always doing. And that is conquering. He's conquering. He has sovereign power, perfect, good, absolute, and total control over everything. And we see that here. In this text, God is, he's enabling miracles to happen by the hands of Paul. Paul is not going around trying to establish a handkerchief and apron healing ministry. That's not what Paul's aim is, is it? You know his aim. You've been taught. Paul is a gospel minister to the Gentiles. His aim is to make Christ known. He's going all over the unknown world where Christ is not Known yet, and he's proclaiming the gospel message to anyone and everyone because it's for all people. That's what Paul's doing. We catch him doing it in Ephesus. And what happens when Paul does that is people are saved, they're born again, they become new creations. And you see that in Acts, and you see churches established. As you proclaim the gospel. And you see Christians' lives matured and become more like Jesus. And they grow and they become more selfless and more loving and more giving. They quit holding on to trying to control their own lives. They let go of this perceived power. Because they realize there's a greater power. You see that's what happened. what's happening when the gospel is proclaimed. You know what also usually happens when the gospel is proclaimed in the book of Acts? Signs and wonders accompany it. Signs and wonders accompany it. They're, they're, they're legitimizing this gospel message to the Gentiles. This is real. And, and that's, that's what's happening here. Paul's in Ephesus. Paul's going to establish churches. Paul's going to preach the gospel. People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed. And guess what? Like, even sweat rags are casting demons out of people. And healing diseases. There's no match. No match for the gospel. That's what's happening here. Paul, Paul, Paul's not looking to have a handkerchief and apron ministry. He's, he's proclaiming the gospel. It's so powerful that it's having this effect. 
I'll just say this side comment. Um, I googled handkerchief apron ministry. It's fun. It's sad too. Uh, you know, one guy said, "Send a handkerchief in and sixty dollars, and we'll bless it and return it to you." And even sadder was the, "Give me one hundred twenty dollars, and you'll get a double portion." Listen, just so you know, church, we don't want your handkerchiefs. Those things are nasty. You give it to us, we'll just throw it away. Power's not in that. Power's not in some phony ministry. Power's in the gospel. And we're here to proclaim that gospel. And it's transforming your lives. It happens to various degrees of success for all of us. God's in control of that, but... It changes us. God protects us. He cares for us by it. What Luke is demonstrating here is that the evil spirits are impotent in comparison to the power of God. The the supernatural healing of diseases is something so easy that God, that even the gospel minister of, of of God can just touch it with a sweat rag and it's gone. Nothing's greater than God's gospel power. It triumphs over all supernatural powers. That's what scene one shows us. Next scene, scene two, we see the gospel triumphs over magical powers. Right? These occult-like powers, these dark powers that seek to tap into the supernatural and have an effect on people's lives. The gospel triumphs over that. Verse 13, Luke introduces us to the seven sons of Sceva. Dun, dun, dun. The seven sons of Sceva. Right? Go around. There's Jewish exorcist guys. And this was conventional vocation during the day, right? If I asked you, hey, what do you do for a living? You're like, I'd go around exercising demons. be like, oh, that's kind of weird. In the West, we'd be kind of thinking that's not really what a lot of people do. Um, but this was pretty common in Ephesus. I mean, these guys were well known throughout the region. They got some, they got some, you know, stuff going for them. They're tapping into the, the supernatural realm through their magical powers, and they're they're doing stuff that makes them look awesome, makes them look great, makes them look powerful. People pay them money to do some stuff. So, you know, these guys are smart, somewhat. They, they're, they're basically going to tap into any power that seems great in order to achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, it's common for them to do that. They want to aim at some supreme power in order to uh, use that supreme power to do whatever they want to do, exercise a demon. So, you know, they're in Ephesus. They hear about this guy named Paul who's going around and even his, you know, Apron and handkerchiefs are casting out evil spirits. And Paul, who's Paul doing that in the name of? Oh, Jesus. Oh, who's that Jesus guy? Get some of that, right? Get some of that product. And maybe Jesus can help me get what I really want here, which is this power and kind of to look great. Right? So, hey, hey, guys, let's use the name of Jesus and let's go cast out some evil spirits. Paul's doing it. I'm sure Paul knows him. I mean, he's encountered the living and true God. We, we, don't have, we, don't, we don't know him, but I mean, 
We can at least use his name, right? Let's go use his name. Come on. So they do. And look what happens. They, they, they see Paul doing amazing things. He's doing it in the name of Jesus. So they say to these evil spirits, right? Notice the plural, spirits. I adjure you by the Jesus. Notice it's, it's the Jesus. They don't really know Jesus like Paul. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. It's like third person Jesus here. Now, for all you UFC fans out there, Ultimate Fighting Championship, how, how would you like to have pulled up a chair to this? I mean, what happens next is just embarrassing. And it's very sobering. And it should sober you. And it should make, make you thankful if you have Jesus Christ, that you're protected. But if you don't have Jesus, you're just as vulnerable as these guys. Look what happens. I mean, this is like, Mixed martial arts on steroids, right? One evil spirit answers them. Who'd they speak to? Many, right? They said to the evil spirits. One of them just answers them, right? He's possessed a man there and he, he turns and he answers them. Jesus? I know. I mean, he's the son of God. Of course I know him. We shudder at him. He makes us come out of the woodwork. We flee from him. We know him. Paul, I recognize that guy. He's legit. He's seen Jesus. He knows Jesus. But the seven sons of Sceva? Who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Never heard of you. You don't even have any Twitter followers. Just kidding. So, in other words, what this evil spirit is saying is that, look, seven dudes of whatever, you don't really have any power because you don't really know Jesus. You don't know the gospel. Jesus is a third party person to you. And because you don't really know Jesus, it's lights out. Lights out. I mean, what happens is just awful. One evil spirit beats down seven grown men and sends them away naked and wounded. With skin cut open and clothes ripped off, the seven sons of Sceva barely escaped with their lives. Now, what's the point? I think a few things. I mean, first, there's, there's a huge difference between God's miraculous power and, and magic. Huge difference. Right? Magic seeks to manipulate the gods, expecting formulaic results, whereas miracle is God's sovereign act through someone. 
what Paul's doing and what these seven sons are doing, big difference. Magic, miracle, huge difference. Second, there's a huge difference between knowledge of Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. The seven sons of Sceva didn't know Jesus. You know, they just, they just knew about him. You know, I think the Lord's been so good to us, and by God's grace, we, we love to learn about Jesus, don't we? I mean, we love to come together and fellowship and talk about Jesus. We're doing a Bible jam right now. We're reading about Jesus. We love to study sound doctrine. And that's right, and that's good. But listen, if none of that is actually helping you meet and know Jesus better, then you're missing the point. If preaching this moment right now, you're not encountering the living God, you're not knowing Jesus himself better, not just knowledge about him or facts, but look, you're, you're not encountering the living God That's a a dangerous place to be. J.I. Packer says this. He says, Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study and our helper in it, so he must himself be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given. And it is to this use that we must put it. This is to help you know Jesus better. We must put it to use. It's eternally, it's eternally important. Right? I mean, you remember sort of the end time sobering scene Jesus describes in Matthew 7? Remember those words? Depart from me. I never knew you. But but didn't we do this in your name? We prophesied in your name. We did healings in your name. Miracles in your name. I never knew you. Depart from me. Do you know Jesus, friend? Do you know him? Like, I'm not just talking about knowing about him. I'm not just talking about, yeah, your parents know him, but, you know, you just, you come here with your parents, and so you you come to church, Okay, you know about him. There's a cross, something like that. Have you encountered him? I mean, have you seen how powerful he really is? Have you seen and tasted how beautiful he really is? And good. Do you know the Savior? Or is it second and third hand knowledge? There's... There's a whole level of spiritual position this world knows nothing of at all. 
And when you talk about spiritual warfare that's going on from God's perspective, listen, it's a realm. It's a realm where money is no currency. Your degrees do not matter in this realm. Neither do your looks, your brains, your bronze, who you know, humanly speaking. There's only one thing that matters. Do you know Jesus? Because if not, we're just a bunch of nobodies who don't really know the only somebody there is to know. Do you know him? You may think you are somebody, but you aren't anybody unless you know the only the only one who is truly somebody. Some of us, some of us might be very surprised on that day. And it, it's just our prayer that that's not the case. That's why scripture is given to us. It's God's kindness. Know him. Know him. Don't be content with where you are. Press on. Make it your aim to know Jesus. And to know him better and better and better and better. If you think that you know everything there is to know about Jesus, you don't really know Jesus. Because the seven sons of Sceva didn't know Jesus, they were overcome by an evil spirit that Paul could have cast out with a sweatband. Why? Because he knew Jesus. And Jesus' power was at work in him. And if we're to experience God's power in our lives and have eternal life and experience transformation from sin and change and becoming more like Christ, we need that gospel power at work in our lives. We need to flee from whatever else is having power that's not him. And we'll see. We'll see that's what some of these Christians eventually do. Possessed, man possessed by one evil spirit pummeled the seven sons of Sceva Sorry, I skipped ahead there. Um, Okay, so we see what happens. The the report of this demonic beatdown, it goes viral, doesn't it? Right? Goes viral in Ephesus. All the residents of the town, they hear about this. Jews and Greeks, they hear about this. What happened to those guys? Wow. Goes viral. Everybody knows about it, and and look what happens to them once they hear about it. Look what happens to them once they hear about it. Verse 17, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Gospel wins, right? And here's the logic. Here's the logic in their minds. Here's what they're they're looking around and thinking this right here, okay? If, If... if that man, possessed by one evil spirit, that guy, that, that guy who's possessed by an evil spirit, if that, that man possessed by one evil spirit pummeled the seven sons of Sceva, and, and yet those evil spirits, that evil spirit, they know who Paul is, right? They know Paul's legit, and that Paul's just casting out evil spirits with the touch of a handkerchief. Then, <laughs> oh my! What sort of power is that? Magic guys looking at supernatural power, which they they spend their whole lives trying to tap into it, and they see that just overcome by Paul. 
as he's preaching the gospel. And they're like, oh, dang. What's that? That scares me. That kind of power frightens everything out of me. So fear falls upon them all. They're they're face to face with the power of God. And the name of Jesus is extolled. They're realizing I'm not great. Nothing about me great. Nothing about those supernatural powers are great. Only Jesus is great. So fear falls upon them and they, they extol him. Kind of makes you think of when Jesus calmed the storm, right? And his disciples are like, oh my goodness, what just happened? Like they're sitting there afraid, the text says. Fear, fear came upon them. I mean, what sort of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You encountering that kind of power? It's there for you. If you're a Christian, it's there for you. We need to live in light of it. We need, we need a healthy fear of God's so we're downloaded into us. So we often just walk around thinking we're great or other things are great. That's just not God. It diminishes really how great God is in our sight. But God's really great. He's really powerful. We need a fear of him. I think the thinking that, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. He's cool in my sin. He's my boyfriend. We're going to run through the daisies together in heaven. It's going to be great. You know, he's just kind of wringing his hands, all this evil in the world. Just, oh, well, I tried. No. That's not Jesus. Jesus is coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth. Robe dipped in blood, eyes ablaze with fire, and he's going to bring judgment on the whole world. And I want to do what he wants me to do. I don't know about you. I'm going to bow my knee on that day willingly, and not because I'm just forced to. Bow my knee now. We need a healthy fear of God. We need to realize we're we're just not as powerful as we think we are. Right? In fact, we're nobodies. We're nobodies in comparison to Him. I mean, He He's great. We're not great. You're not great. I don't care what this world tells you. You're not great. I'm not great. None of us are great. Only God is great. There's nothing clever about us. I love this quote by Bruce Waltke. He says, No man can give at once the impressions that he himself is clever and Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Listen, if you really want to be truly great, which we all do, by the way, you really want to be impressive. 
Want to live an impressive life? Fear God. Extol Jesus in your life. Let this govern you, right? And God has power to help you do that. God works that in you. And aren't you grateful Jesus Christ was perfect for you? He was totally righteous. All the moments we don't fear God, he perfectly feared him. He walked blameless. We're going to get to that. I'm getting ahead. So, uh, scene three, all right? We see the gospel triumphs over supernatural powers. It triumphs over magical powers. Scene three. Look what these people start doing when they encounter the power of the gospel. It triumphs over human powers of sin. As the gospel triumphs over the darkness of demons and magic, the believers in Ephesus recognize. Here's what they recognize. They they recognize, one, uh uh-oh, I need to fear him. Two, they recognize that their syncretism with such darkness is, in fact, sin. So they confess it and divulge themselves of it. Right? They're, made, they're made aware of some things in their life that just, you know, they're counterintuitive to the gospel. They just don't, you, you can't buy into that and also buy into the gospel. You can't, you can't look for power here and also live according to this power. You can't submit yourself to this power and also submit yourself to the gospel. So they realize, oh, wait, wait, wait. These magic books, like, we're, we're, we're out of line here, guys. Now, they didn't realize that when they became Christians. It's just a process of them maturing in their faith. And that's true of us too, right? We don't, God just doesn't show us all of our sin right when we become Christians. Thankfully. He does reveal some things and he radically removes some things. Some things stay. We don't know. He doesn't show us everything. And these guys, they, they see this awesome power. And they're like, oh my goodness. Like, this stuff has no place in our lives now. We got to get rid of this. In the kindness of God, this is God's kindness. In the kindness of God, these believers, they encounter the power of the gospel in their lives afresh. And they come to a realization that they were living in a way inconsistent with the gospel. They see the beauty of Christ, his great power and love for them in the gospel. And they decide it's time to get rid of stuff. They saw in Jesus something better, something more powerful, something more attractive. And so they confessed and divulged of whatever darkness was standing between them and walking in the light with Jesus. We think we really do have power when we try to manage our sins on our own. I got this. Just keep it in the dark, kind of down here. 
Every once in a while it just flares up and overtakes me, but that, then it's, it's okay the next day. So it's cool. I'm all right. You have no power over that. That thing will consume you. And it will leave you in ashes. If it's not dealt with. In light of the power of the gospel. And we need to divulge ourselves with some things, right? I know I do. We all do. Get rid of some things in our lives. And the good news is that that's what God's doing in you. That's God's activity. Do you desire that? That's that's God. That's the power of the gospel at work in your life. It's continually molding you and shaping you and helping you become more like Jesus Christ. And God God is there to help you. He's there waiting. And his power is greater than everything. Shame, guilt, sin, addiction, lust. Just disinterest in Jesus. (laughs) The gospel triumphs over all those things. And God's ready to activate it in your life in a very powerful way. We got we to do some stuff, right? First we see, we, we need to confess. Confess some stuff. Get stuff into the light. Get out of the way. You. It's all been paid for, atoned for, forgiven. We get it in the light. It loses power. It weakens it exponentially. That's what these believers do. And God meets us there. Leave this quote by Ray Ortland in your notes as we seek to confess and walk in the light. The wonderful thing is that when we lose our way, is that you this morning? I mean, have you, do you feel like, yeah, I've lost my way. Messed up. It's too bad now. Listen, when we lose our way, God is not hard to find again. God's not hard to find again. He has made himself, in fact, very findable. You know where he is? He's in the light. That's where God is. You're not going to find him if you're just hiding in the dark and hiding sin and trying to manage stuff on your own. You're not going to find God there. There's no grace for you there. There's no grace for you as you think about the future and all the what ifs and all the uncertainties. All the things, the consequences of your sin are going to you know, cause in your life. Grace is in the light. God is in the light. He's there, right out there in the place of truth, honesty, openness, confession, and owning up. God himself awaits us there. 
we sinners can come to him freely through the cross of Christ. There in the light, but only in the light, listen, everything gets better. Everything gets better. The price we pay is to face ourselves. And that's humiliating. Like, oh, I'm I'm really that bad? Yes, we all are. Haven't you seen the cross? My goodness, look how bad things were. But look how good things are as well because of it. So we face ourselves, we face our sins. It's humiliating, it's painful. It's why we shun the light. We don't want to go there. That, that, that's going to be too painful to get that out in the light. I don't, want to, I don't want to divulge of that or confess that, right? So we shun the light. There are episodes in our past we don't want to think about. Harsh words, acts of betrayal, broken promises, and worse. So we shove those memories down into the darkness of our excuses and blame shifting. And we just refuse to call sin, sin. We feel too threatened by what we have done, even to admit it to ourselves. Much less confess it to God and others. But. We hear something wonderful. But. Those places of deepest shame, deepest regret, those are where the Lord Jesus loves us the most tenderly. Is there any reason not to walk in his light together? where we recover fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Jesus loves us so tenderly in those places that he shed his own blood. He's eager to cleanse you. He's eager to restore marriages. He's eager to transform lives. He's eager to deliver you from that sin that's just not going away. We got to walk in the light. That's where he is. That's where the power of the gospel is. You're not going to find it anywhere else. It's simple, isn't it? Let's not make it hard. Just walk in the light. You'll never regret it ever. You will never regret confessing sin and walking in the light. God is in the light and he awaits you there. There's no reason for us to not run to the light and enjoy fellowship there with him. Look what happens next. These Ephesians, they so realize where goodness is and where God is that they not only confess stuff, right? We don't stop there. We don't stop at confession. Part of transformation is getting rid of stuff. You gotta get practical about it. Get rid of some stuff. That, That stuff that has power over your life, get rid of it. 
That's what these guys do. They got these magic books. They're worth $60 million in today's currency. Now, (laughs) I'm sure it could be easy to find some reasons why we could kind of like, oh, yeah, I see that's bad, but it's worth $60 million. I don't have to get rid of that, do I? Make some excuses on that. You You ever been there? I see that's wrong in my life. I need to get rid of it. But look how much I need it. Look how valuable it is. Look how powerful it is. As these Ephesians stared at that, they were happy to divulge themselves of it. All right, so as a community, think how powerful this is, right? Not just as individuals, but as a community of people. They gather it all together. All the stuff that had power in their lives and diminished Christ's power in their lives, they gather it all together and they go into the town square probably or into the city and they they lay it all down. These aren't like books like this. These are like long scrolls, right? There were no, no, no book binding in that day. Long scrolls, handwritten stuff, very, very valuable stuff to them. Take it all as a community of people and say together, Jesus is way better than this. Jesus is way more powerful than this. I want to experience more of his power in my life. And as a people, they they lay it all down. And they burn it. They get rid of it. Listen, this isn't an inappropriate book burning, right? Like we might hear about when a dictator takes over and he's like, let's blot out all literature that, you know, Uh, is alternative to my thinking. No, this is a genuine rejection of sin and a public statement about a personal change of direction in life. Today, it might be kind of laughed at. Sure, it's extreme. But wouldn't you rather be extreme and pluck one eye out and be in heaven? Wouldn't you rather be extreme and only have one hand when the other one causes you to sin? So I think we need to get aggressive about avoiding some stuff in our lives. We don't need to live like those books have power over us anymore. Don't live like there's anything else that has power over you. Submit to Jesus' power. You can, you can really do something. In closing, you, know, you can really do something about the stuff in your life. You really can. The gospel, the gospel promises that. And it's more powerful than the stuff in our lives. You don't have to fear it or feed it. You you can actually flee from it. It can take you down. It can take you down. But listen, it's no match for the gospel. There is no sinner so enslaved that Jesus cannot set you free. Eric, can come back up. Let me ask you this. Anybody in here who doubt, does anybody here doubt this? Do you doubt that the gospel is really powerful? Right, we can have one of these kind of moments here. We come, we come face to face with some power. You doubt, do you doubt that the gospel can really change you? That it can really set you free? If so, 
maybe you've never really known this power. Maybe you've really, never really known it. Maybe there are other powers that work in you so strong that it's kind of diminished the gospel's power in your life. Maybe you're too enthralled with inferior powers of this world. Maybe you think your life's too much of a mess for God to clean it up. Maybe you think like the prodigal son, I just, I'm just too unworthy to go back. God, God's not going to welcome me. After all that I've done, I can't really change, Jason. Listen, it'd be really cruel of me to stand up here and tell you that you can if you really can't. But there is a power available for you if you know Jesus that trumps all other powers. And it can cleanse the deepest stains and wash the vilest sinner and set captives free and make things new. Must any of us doubt that God loves us and that through his gospel of grace will freely welcome us home? Just close with this quote here by Francis Schaeffer. Look at it down at the bottom of your notes. The obedience and death of the Lord Jesus laid the foundation and opened the way for the exercise of this great and sovereign act of grace. The cross of Jesus displays the most awesome exhibition of God's hatred of sin. And at the same time, the most august manifestation of his readiness to pardon it. You see that? Pardon. Full and free is written out in every drop of blood that is seen and is proclaimed in every groan that is heard. Oh, blessed blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. Here, the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless may come. Here too, the weary spirit may bring its burden. Here, the broken spirit, its sorrow. The guilty spirit, its sin. The backsliding spirit, its wandering. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor, guilty sinner. What what more could he have done than this? It makes sense to doubt. As you stare at sin in your life, if Jesus has not overcome it. It makes sense to despair when your past is filled with shame and regret. If 
Jesus has not overcome that. It makes sense to be discouraged as you look within and see an inability to change by means of your own resources if Jesus has not overcome that. But if he has, if God's gospel is greater than all of these and he has miraculously saved you by it, then listen, all those powers, they're broken in your life. The power of sin is broken in your life. You can get rid of it. You can come clean. That's where God is. He's there to meet you. He forgives us. The powers of the devil and demons shudder at God. The powers of darkness and magic are helpless before God. The powers of sin defeated by God. If God can take down a legion of spirits with a handkerchief, then he's going to increase and prevail not only against all other powers, but even over the power of sin in your life. There's, There's no sin too alive in you that Jesus cannot put to death. No shame, no regret, no failure, nothing too devastating that Jesus' blood cannot wash clean. And sin might increase in our lives. We'll never be perfect. We'll see more sin. Sin might increase. But if you confess your sins, and if you walk in the light as he is in the light, and you begin to get rid of some things, listen to this promise. Grace will abound all the more in your life. It will abound all the more in your life as a result of the gospel's power. Let's pray. Lord, our confidence is in you and you alone this morning. Lord, you and you alone are the great God and King whom we worship. Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for saving us, helping us, Lord, transforming us. Lord, we're protected in you. We're guarded in Christ. Lord, I pray for us as a church that as we encounter more and more of the gospel's power in our life, there would also be supplied to us power from you to confess and get rid of things that do not align with the gospel. Things that diminish the power of Christ. Lord, we want, we want to see the power of Christ greatly at work in our lives. And we want the world to see that, God. We want the world to know the power of the gospel. So by your spirit, blow that power into, it, into us, infuse our minds and our hearts with it, our lives with it, Lord. Let's help us to walk in the light by the power of your Spirit and make much of you with our lives. It's in Jesus' powerful, mighty name above all names that we pray. Amen. Let's go stand up stand up together just respond to that message and song together declare to the Lord with our voices with our, with our bodies that he is Lord of all that he is in fact powerful most powerful most high